0: From Schwartz Media, I'm Kyra Jensen-McKinnon. This is 7am. On Australia's doorstep, one country has taken the global war on drugs to the extreme. When Rodrigo Duterte became president of the Philippines in 2016, he promised to slaughter drug dealers. And his hardline anti-drug regime lasted until last year when he was beaten in elections. But has the end of Duterte really ended the slaughter? Has the new government lived up to its promises? Or do the bodies in Manila's morgues tell us the war has gone underground? Today, contributor to the monthly, Margaret Simons, on what happens when you unleash violence on the streets and why it's so hard to end. It's Monday, February 6th. Margaret, the war on drugs in the Philippines killed tens of thousands of people, according to some estimates, but President Rodrigo Duterte, who unleashed these killings, he's been swept from office now, and so you travelled to the Philippines to see whether the killings had really stopped. So what did you find?
1: Yeah, so I reported on the war on drugs at its height in 2016 with photographer Dave Tacon, and have been interested to find out how, if anything, had changed under the new regime. And the death of the Montejo brothers, Ronnie and JR, were among the very last of the victims just before President Marcos was sworn in in the middle of last year. It was a case where, you know, fairly typically, the police claimed that they were drug dealers, claimed that they were armed and that they uh, resisted arrest and that they were killed in the policeman's self-defence. It's a story that makes absolutely no sense. This is an extremely poor family. The idea that they could have afforded guns, let alone the amount of drugs that that were claimed to be found on them is quite ridiculous. When the bodies were eventually found and went to the morgue, they were wearing fresh clothes, not the clothes that the brothers had left the home in. Uh, There were no bullet holes in the clothes to match the wounds in the bodies. And the family was effectively offered a bribe to keep quiet and not make a fuss, which they refused and have been talking to anybody at would ever since. But it's clear that the killings continue. In just the limited time that I was trawling through these networks, I heard of another six deaths that have occurred in the last few months. And then in October, a 30-year-old man and his 10-year-old son were shot dead by masked motorcycle gunmen. And they also killed a bystander in the same incident. There was a man who was sleeping on the street who stood up to see what was happening, and he got shot as well. The 10-year-old boy was clinging to his father as he was shot dead, and that's how he died. And the man's wife was also shot, and according to people I spoke to who visited her, uh, the bullet remains in her leg because she's too terrified to go to hospital. And none of that has been reported in the media either the local media or the international media. Therefore, none are included in the official figures as victims of the war on drugs. But these killings are going on frequently.
0: And, Margaret, the Philippines has long had this campaign to kill suspected drug dealers. It was a push led by the former president of the country, Rodrigo Duterte, as you mentioned. So can you tell me how this campaign came about and how it was received by the Filipino people at the time?
1: Yeah, well, Rodrigo Duterte uh, came to power promising to crack down on drug dealing. Mr. President.
0: Hardline anti-crime mayor Rodrigo Duterte is poised to become the next president of the Philippines after polls gave him a
1: commanding lead. And, you know, he was quite frank about it. He said, I will slaughter drug dealers. You destroy my country, I'll kill you.
0: And it's a legitimate uh, thing. If you destroy our young children, I will kill you. That is a very correct statement.
1: And he was as good as his word. In 2016, at the start of his period, the police were encouraged to take action against drug dealers in a campaign called Tok Hong, That translates to knock and plead. The idea is that they would knock on doors. Plead with people to enter rehabilitation. Very quickly became known as a knock on the door followed by death. And the classic narrative would be that the police engaged in what they call a buy bus, that is they went undercover the and bought drugs. Then when they moved in for the arrest, the drug dealers always took the sometimes foolish decision to fight back and then were shot. And at the height of the war on drugs in 2016 and 2017, there were dozens and dozens of deaths every night.
0: Almost every day, dead bodies are being recovered from the streets in Manila. On this occasion, a tricycle taxi driver who was shot in the head. Another victim of a war on crime where suspects aren't afforded the chance to face charges, let alone a trial.
1: And when I was reporting on that, it was possible to follow the police around literally from corpse to corpse.
0: A drive by shooting by masked men. Police quick to say they happened to find a packet of shabu or meth on the victim.
1: Even then, the narrative of the police that the drug dealers always fought back defied credulity. In, in one case, um, we narrowly missed witnessing a killing but it was clear that the guy who'd been killed had been handcuffed at the time. It just looks unbelievable.
0: How do you pull a gun if your hands are cuffed? See in the photo. It's hardly a unique image in this
1: drug war. Flip through their files, and the same scenario pops up at scene after scene. At the height of it, it was just murder, basically, and the International Criminal Court is investigating those deaths right now. And it tailed off, there are fewer killings now, but it hasn't changed much from the latter days of the Duterte regime to the early days of the Marcos regime.
0: Mm -hmm. And we are a couple of years on, as you say, from the height of those killings. So what has happened since to the families of the people that were killed and the communities that were left to pick up the pieces?
1: Of course, there are hundreds, if not thousands of them, um, all in various degrees of trauma. There are some agencies which are helping them. Various Catholic Church-backed agencies have been helping the victims. There's a little coffee shop that's opened in the suburbs of Manila, which is staffed entirely by the widows and family members of the victims of the War on Drugs. But yes, the whole country went through a massive trauma When somebody dies, the tradition in the Philippines is that you'll have a wake with an open coffin for a period of around seven days. But then the funeral costs are more than most families could possibly afford, so there's always a big attempt to raise money for the funeral. Again, the Catholic Church is helping with that to some extent. But the poor are stacked in what they call apartments, which is little boxes, basically, just big enough to hold the corpse, which are stacked up to six or seven storeys high in the corners of the cemeteries and it's, um, you pay a rent on that of about 5,000 pesos, about $150, and that you've got that space for six years. Now, the leases on some of those from the height of the War on Drugs are now e- expiring, and if you can't pay the renewed lease, which most of these families wouldn't be able to, the remains are simply removed and thrown into a communal pit. And while there are now fewer deaths each night, the deaths do continue, it's very hard to get reliable figures on this because many of these deaths are not owned by the police, if you like, they're, um, they're done by masked motorcycle-riding gunmen who are generally believed to be the police as well, but uh, the police deny that. And death comes very easily. Uh, if you annoy somebody, if you have a falling out, certainly if you annoy the police, it's a very dangerous thing to do if you're poor and have lived an obscure life. but. The sobering thing is that in these cases there's no suggestion of an investigation, an inquiry, of demonstrations, and yet this is happening every few nights that somebody will simply be killed. We'll be back in a moment.
0: The Every Moment Matters campaign provides accurate, evidence-based information and advice about alcohol, pregnancy and breastfeeding. It has been created by the Foundation for Alcohol Research and Education and endorsed and funded by the Australian Government. Alcohol use during pregnancy can lead to Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorder, or FASD, a lifelong disability. So make the moment you start trying the moment to stop drinking. Visit everymomentmatters.org.au to find out more.
1: As a a. 7am listener, you're already familiar with many of the journalists who work for the Saturday paper. For a limited time, subscribe to Australia's leading independent news source, The Saturday Paper, and you'll receive The Saturday Paper stainless steel coffee cup, made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer.
0: So, Margaret, you've been saying that the killings of suspected drug dealers and addicts and, and even the people who just get accused of drug dealing by people who have a grudge against them they're all still being killed. But this is all happening now under a new president, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., who's the son of the former dictator of the country by the same name, and he's promised things will change. So can you tell me a bit about what he's promised and why this is still happening despite that?
1: Well, the slaughter certainly hasn't finished, as I say, the deaths go on, not at the same rate, at the height of the war on drugs. It tailed off in the latter years of Duterte as well. There were fewer deaths. But there really has been no change from the latter days of the Duterte regime and the early ones of the Marcos regime. Ferdinand Romualdez Marcos, Jr., the duly elected president of the Republic of the Philippines.
0: May we request the duly elected president.
1: Ferdinand Marcos, as you say, is the, the son of the dictator Marcos who was deposed in the People Power Revolution in the 80s. And he promised a more compassionate approach, one that focused more on rehabilitation.
0: Let us uh, education for education to our young people to say that, you know, this is a dead end. Uh, this
1: will get you absolutely nowhere. It will get you put in jail. It will get you killed. Uh, and he called it a more holistic approach with less death and more healing. And second part of that is cure. Uh, to be
0: more sensitive and more sympathetic to those who actually have gotten caught in up caught up in uh, uh, this uh, lifestyle.
1: But it is very hard to get reliable figures on the killings because many of them are done by unknown assailants, these masked motorcycle-riding gunmen, extrajudicial killings, as they're called, EJKs is the shorthand in the Philippines. But uh, the best available figures, which are kept by a project at the University of the Philippines, are still putting deaths at sort of five or six a month that are reported in the media. But as I say in the article, just in the short period I was there trawling around the slums, I heard of another half dozen deaths which were not reported by the media at all and therefore not in, in that database. So it's very hard to know how many killings are taking place, but I would suspect at least a dozen a month, and I would regard that as a very conservative estimate.
0: And you say back at the height of these killings it was an international news story and that's kind of tapered off now. So I wonder if you can kind of track how it has been covered by the media and why we're no longer seeing it in the news.
1: Well, the the last question is a good one. (laughs) Um, But when I was reporting it in 2016 and 2017, I was part of a media pack, which included local journalists certainly, but also the New York Times and um, Al Jazeera and all the international news agencies, and it was on the front page of media right round the world. Most of the people I interviewed when I was there in November hadn't seen an international journalist for years. So the attention of the international media has moved on. And, of course, that's partly because there probably are fewer deaths than there were, but still many, many deaths, the sort of numbers of deaths which would be causing, you know, utter outrage, certainly in Australia, but in, you know, most other countries of the world. But it's a murkier story these days, and, as I say, hard to get precise figures. Um, The people who are on the end of most of these killings are um, very poor, lacking any means to bring their story to attention, and they're often in danger themselves. They often have had threats about what will happen if they speak out, and also bribes to keep quiet. And for extremely poor people, of course, when the chances of being heard if they do speak out, taking money to feed a family is often a tempting option.
0: And so you say there are these masked gunmen. Do we actually know who they are? Are they representing the government or the police or is it another group of people entirely?
1: Well, the International Criminal Court has said it's clear that these killers are working in conjunction with the police. There have been repeated allegations aired in the media and elsewhere that they actually are the police. But, you know, I think that it is a contract killing business in which the police are closely involved and there has been recent evidence that the police are also some of the main drug dealers Uh, There's been recent um, arrests of a police officer who was found with a huge amount of shabu, which is the local name for methamphetamine. So, yes, it's a story of police corruption, of contract killing, and I don't think the government is entirely in control anymore. I think the licence that Duterte gave to the police has now morphed into, you know, a general miasma of corruption and contract killing and drug dealing. So it sounds like
0: this drug war that's supposed to be ending really isn't, and that it's going to be almost impossible to put the forces that Duterte has unleashed all those years ago back in the bottle. So just how are people in the Philippines responding to the drug war today? What do they think?
1: Well, it depends on who you talk to. There have been recent demonstrations organised by human rights organisations and so on against the killings. The families, of course, continue to cry out for justice, but it has become almost a way of life to fear death and to know that death comes frequently. And Marcos was elected overwhelmingly with Sarah Duterte as his vice president and it was clearly understood that the Marcos regime would not pursue the Duterte regime. The Philippines has withdrawn from the International Criminal Court. The Marcos has made it clear that it won't rejoin the International Criminal Court. Um, and yet Marcos was elected. So it's become, I hate to say it's accepted because of course the outrage of those most closely involved is intense, but there is no realistic sign of proper investigation or proper moves to end this. The Philippines has been a violent society for a long time. I mean, before Duterte. And the Philippines is a extremely corrupt society. It's one of the most dangerous places in the world for journalists to work. And I'm, I'm talking there about local journalists, but journalists get killed quite often. Uh, Percy Lapid, who's a uh, very well-known radio journalist, was gunned down by masked motorcycle-riding gunmen just last October. And to put that in local context, you know, it would be a bit like if uh, Neil Mitchell or John Fane had been shot down. So... You know, it is a dangerous, violent and corrupt society and a democracy that is under extreme challenge. And it's very hard to see how that's going to change in the short term.
0: Mm. Margaret, thank you so much for your time.
1: That no worries, thanks for your interest. Andrew O'Hagan's latest Caledonian Road explores one man's epic fall from grace. I'm Michael Williams, and on this week's Read This, I sit down with Andrew to discuss this and the state of modern Britain. All that and more, wherever you listen.
0: Also in the news today, the US military has shot down a balloon that was controlled by China. The balloon, which the US alleges was used for spying, managed to cross the entire US before being shot down over the Atlantic Ocean by an F-22 fighter jet over the weekend. President Joe Biden said he immediately ordered the balloon to be shot down after he was briefed about it last week. Quote, I ordered the Pentagon to shoot it down on Wednesday as soon as possible without doing damage to anyone on the ground. And the Tesla Model 3 became the third highest selling car in Australia in January, the highest a fully battery powered car has ever ranked in Australian sales. The result comes at the same time that a San Francisco jury found Elon Musk did not commit fraud over a pair of 2018 tweets. In the tweets, he suggested he would take the carmaker public and pay $420 a share, an idea he never followed through on, but did lead to a brief surge in the price of shares. I'm Kyra Jensen-McKinnon, this is 7am, see you tomorrow.